Well, as you know, if you may not know, we're going through the books of the Bible. We're going through the seeing Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, and we are all the way to uh, 1 Corinthians tonight. We'll look at the entirety of that book in brief, but ho hopefully comprehensively as well. And uh, where I want to begin, as usual, I talk about the vital statistics in these studies, the who, where, what, when, and why. And so we want to talk about, obviously, first of all, who is the author of 1 Corinthians, and uh, the very first word of the letter is Paul. He tells us in verse 1-1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he mentions our brother Sosthenes, who actually was from uh, the city of Corinth and was with Paul in Ephesus as he's writing this letter. He addresses it to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified by Christ Jesus and called to be holy. It's an interesting designation. I like the way that uh, Eugene put it, Peterson put it. When he, instead of writing sanctified and called to be holy, he, has, he says, cleaned up and set apart for a God-filled life. In other words, that is really somewhat thematic of what we'll find here because the idea that Paul is really, or the con, uh, issue Paul is addressing is the fact that they were really into spiritual slippage. Uh, they struggled with a lot of the dynamics that I think are fairly common within uh, Western, certainly American Christianity. Uh, it's like in Revelation where the Lord said to one of the churches, you have a name that you live, the church of Sardis, but you're dead. There's a dynamic that many people will refer to them as followers of Christ, but uh, when you look at their life, you don't see anything distinct or separate from the world and the culture around them. They essentially have the same values, the same beliefs, the same uh, behavior patterns. And so Paul sees this in the Corinthian church, very concerned with how they're dealing with stuff, as we'll talk about, and basically says, this is who you actually are. God came and he sanctified you, he cleaned you up, and then he set you apart to, be, to live a life that's filled with him. And that is really the calling that's upon us. Uh, as I mentioned, that Paul uh, wrote this uh, from the city of Ephesus. Um, he, he, Paul gives us a very detailed itinerary of his journeys to this point when he says in, back in the last chapter of the book, in verses 5 through 9, he says that after I go through Macedonia, uh, which is northern Greece today, or actually it's the whole country of Macedonia today, but he says, I will come to you for I will be going through Macedonia and then he goes on to say, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me. It's interesting reasoning just on itself when you look at Paul saying, I'm going to stay here uh, until winter because there's a great door, door of opportunity open for me. And he says, and there's a whole bunch of people who are opposed to me. <laughs> now, I've never chosen to go any place where people didn't like me. You know, <laughs> I found myself in that place unexpectedly, but I've never on purpose gone there. And yet Paul looks on that opposition as not a problem, but as an evidence that he's right where God wants him to be. Most of you understand this in your own life, that when you decide that you're going to really yield to God in some direction of your life, it seems like <clears throat> a big wind comes and blows the roof off. You know, it's like uh, they're, they're just unexpected events that come into your life and you go, what went wrong? I must be in sin or I must have missed the will of God because things are becoming so difficult. And it's our failure, I think, to grasp many times that we are uh, in a spiritual war that in the same way that our, our, our leaders sometimes have trouble grasping that we are in a war with uh, radical jihadism, we are in a war spiritually as well, that Satan has a radical jihad against your life. 
He wants to do anything and everything he can do to keep you ineffectual and, and to get you to choose to step out of the line of fire and kind of hide on the sidelines. And so Paul had this very, very different view. He said, basically, when I see that opposition, it really awakens me to the fact I must be right on track with what God has for my life because there's this huge door. But again, another misconception we often have is that if God opens a door, it's just like sliding downhill, you glide and you abide and everything works out. Again, based upon the same concept, spiritual warfare. And when a great door opens, you can count on encountering problems. Just count on it. You start praying for somebody, let me tell you, the enemy will give you more reasons not to want to pray for them ever again. You know, because you'll just think, oh, I'm not going to, because that's exactly where the enemy wants you to go. But when you begin to just begin to yield to God in some area, you're going to find that you're going to confront some issues. Well, as I said, Paul faced so much opposition, and we'll get into that in quite a bit of detail in 2 Corinthians. But what we, it's important for us to understand contextually is that we know that Paul had three what we call major missionary journeys. And if we just look at the extent of those journeys, we know that he traveled about 10,000 miles. When you realize that most of that was on foot, that's a huge distance to cover in your lifetime. But he, we, he probably went more places than that. That's just what's recorded. But basically, we have the three what we call missionary journeys of Paul. The first one, when Paul and Barnabas uh, leave from the city of Antioch, which had become, by that time, uh, the... Uh, around around 42 B.C. in that area, had become really the center of Gentile Christianity. The church started in Jerusalem. Then when the persecution came, people fled. They went up to Antioch, and they started leading people to Christ, even Gentiles. And that became the center of Gentile Christianity for about the next 50 years. And that's where Paul was headquartered along with Barnabas and other leaders who were committed to reaching the Gentiles for Christ. And if you recall from Acts chapter 13 that Barnabas and Paul are sent out and the first thing they go to is we, it was the Isle of Crete where you see the cities of Paphos and Salamis. Uh, the Isle of Crete was basically where um, uh, Barnabas was from, so basically he was going home to minister to his own kin. But then they went there, and they went, if you can go back one again, just a little too quick, yeah, go. And they went back up into the north, which is this area of Asia Minor. Today it's the southern part of the nation of Turkey. So basically Paul and Barnabas went and planted churches throughout this whole region. Well, the second missionary journey, which came uh, a bit later, um, was uh, really started out with a disagreement. If you recall, Paul and Barnabas got in a big argument about whether or not to take John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, to take him with them because he had left midway through their first journey. And uh, so Barnabas took Bar Mark with him. They went back uh, to the island of Crete, and then they began to travel up north uh, overland rather than by sea to revisit the churches that they had planted earlier, the Church of Iconium, the Church of Lystra, the Church of Derby, And then with reasons that were not given, Paul begins to journey towards the coast, uh, across what again is, would be modern-day Turkey, until he finally can't go any further. He ends up in Troas. He tells us in, the, in Acts that there's spiritual resistance. At one place he said Satan resists this. Another place he says the Lord told us uh, to go this way instead. 
but he ends up at Troas, and really you're kind of at the end of the, of the shoreline. There's no place else to go. So this must have been an interesting or frustrating period in Paul's journey because he's heading somewhere, but he doesn't know where it's going. I don't know if any of you have ever had that feeling. Uh, when you're 20, you think you know where you're going, and when you're 50, you realize you have no idea. But he ends up at Troas, and that's where God gives him what we call the Macedonian call. He has a vision from God to go across the Aegean over to Europe, and that's where uh, the Philippi you see in Epipolis and Apollonia. These are cities of Macedonia, northern, uh, northern part of Greece, as we often refer to it. And uh, there, Paul begins planting churches. He, and this is where we say the beginning of the European church, because that's across the, the Aegean there is from moving from Asia to Europe. And uh, he, he uh, plants churches in Berea, Thessalonica. He goes to Athens. We're not really given indication whether or not a church was ever established firmly there in Athens, and ends up in the city of Corinth. And Paul spends two years in Corinth. It's, it's like God opens this big door of ministry, and he has a profound impact. And, and even though there's intense efforts to stop the work, the church becomes a very vibrant and exciting place for the gospel. Now, you have to understand that where sin abounds, grace abounds. And when we talk in those terms, Corinth was literally that place. It was one of the most uh, financially vibrant places of the ancient world because uh, ships from Asia would land there. They would go across what they call the Isthmus of Corinth, and they would get on other ships and go all the way to Rome and, and other places in Europe. And so it was a place where lots of business was taking place. Money was being made. Lots of people were crowding in and out. Uh, from all sorts of culture, a very metropolitan, cosmopolitan place. But at the very center of the city on a high hill called the Acropolis was the uh, temple to Athena, or not Athena, excuse me, to Aphrodite. And basically, uh, the, it, it was a, what we call a fertility cult. They said that every night, a thousand temple priestesses would wind down to the harbor and sell their bodies to the seamen and others that were there, and then they would bring the monies back in the evening and deposit it in the temple, so that this actually we call temple prostitution was an institutionalized kind of lifestyle, so that uh, the idea of sexual morality was very blurred. In fact, it was non-existent. There, the concept in Corinth that there was no sexual taboos or prohibitions, which explains in part a lot of the dynamics that we see in Corinth. Corinth becomes one of those kind of wide open cities where the only rule is to make as much money and enjoy life as much as you can. And so when you have that attitude or that view of reality, it really loosens the moral strands and people become basically libertine in their lifestyle, which essentially means you do whatever you feel like. If it feels good, you do it. And so Paul comes there with the gospel of, uh, of Christ and has an amazing response, probably uh, second only to what he would later experience even in the city of Ephesus. But God was really moving powerfully and at the end of two years, he established the leadership of the church and headed back to Jerusalem. And after going to Jerusalem, he then returns back up north, back up to Antioch, uh, preparing really for the third missionary journey. And that's the next slide we have here, um, where essentially the third missionary journey is really a repeat of the first missionary journey. He simply goes back through all of those cities, but this time 
he goes to Ephesus and spends an extensively long period of time. And it's while he's in Ephesus in his third missionary journey that Paul receives messengers from the city of Corinth who come and tell him there are problems in the church. In fact, we, by indication, there are two different groups. One is uh, people from the house of Chloe, and the other one is this individual Sosthenes that he mentions in the beginning of the church, who uh, apparently was one of the leaders of the church. Um, basically, we know that Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthians. And the reason we know that is because he mentions in our letter of 1 Corinthians, an earlier letter where he says, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. We kind of pick up a theme here. Uh, in his letter, to, as he goes on in 2 Corinthians, he has to really kind of clarify because he goes on and say, but now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy. So we have 1 Corinthians, we have 2 Corinthians, we know there was a previous letter. It's most likely there were many letters. In fact, there were probably many more letters that uh, we don't have record of that uh, were not for divine reasons included within the canon of Scripture. But we are very thankful and appreciative of having the book of 1 Corinthians because it is probably the clearest explanation of how the church is supposed to function on a daily basis. I mean, how it practically works out. He, it's full of practical advice. It's the most practical letter, letter, in fact, in all of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches. Um, why did he write it? Well, I said because of this report that there were these problems. First and foremost, he addresses the issue of schisms. Uh, schismos or schema in, in the Greek literally means uh, tearing apart it's, it's based upon a Greek word that its root means to like ripping a cloth in half. In other words, he says there are dynamics going on in the church that are ripping the church apart. And we find him going into detail. We'll touch on it in a moment what exactly those kind of things are. But essentially, the word divisions or schismas uh, is used uh, about four or five times in the letter, which is actually very frequent to describe the dynamic that was taking place. But secondly, as you might expect, he addresses the issue of immorality, and it's uh, even to the point of incest and, uh, and, again, sexual immorality, that when Paul speaks of the incest issue, he says, even the heathen are kind of scandalized by this. So apparently the Corinthians did have some limits. And so he's addressing it, and not simply because it was happening, because sins like that, sexual immorality has happened everywhere, always. But the problem was that not only was it happening in the church, that's not news either, but the point was that there was a lack of discipline in the church, an unwillingness to address the sin at hand. And we'll explore that a little bit more in a moment. Thirdly, he talks about lawsuits, that when people had disagreements, Christians were suing other Christians. And uh, believe it or not, I've been sued a few times. Um, I had a pastor sue me one time. Uh, I won't go into details, but it was pretty bizarre. <laughs> I just, I, I just kind of tried to remind him of his pastor, but you know he wanted to he wanted to become affiliated. And I wouldn't wouldn't agree to it, so he sued me. Anyway, um, it, it's a it's a bizarre thing to think about that you would actually take try to take somebody to court and sue them over something if they're a brother, but it reveals that what really was primarily important to them was the financial dynamic of their life more so than the fellowship. And we'll talk about how God 
says that we need to address those things in our life. And then fourthly, uh, he has a number of questions that he answers. So that part of it, he gets his first report from Chloe's house of all of these problems that are going on in the church, and he addresses those. And then probably when Sosthenes arrived, he said, we have a lot of things that we need clarification on. And a lot of it has to do with things like marriage and divorce and singleness and uh, what liberties we can and should not take and, and practical issues of worship and, of course, uh, the role of the resurrection in the life of the believer. So it's, it's really, again, I say it's, it's a, a valuable letter because it does help us to ferret out and to really define more clearly what God's heart is on a lot of these issues. And what's kind of interesting is even on some of them, Paul makes the statements to the effect of, I'm going to give you what I think, what my opinion is, but I, and I'm not saying it's God's opinion, but I'm just saying I do have the Spirit of the Lord. It's an interesting way, you know, interesting way of kind of uh, shading that to the people that, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I'm not. And <laughs> you'd be wise to listen to me. But uh, uh, I just think Paul would have been a fascinating guy to talk to. I just, I, yeah, and it goes without saying, doesn't it? Um, oftentimes I try to really identify a key verse, and, and if you've ever tried to identify a key verse in a book, one of the things you'll find is that everybody has a different one. So I'll give you mine. Uh, one that has been really a, a thematic verse for me throughout my entire Christian life. I think the first time I read this book, it really stuck in my mind. I never tried to memorize it, but I've never been able to forget it. It's just been, been written, branded in my brain. But in chapter 15, after speaking of the resurrection, in, in verse 58, when he's really kind of coming to the close of the book, he makes this statement. He says, Therefore, my beloved, uh, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, it's almost like saying the only mistake you can do make is to give up. The only mistake you can make is to stop going forward. Because if you move forward, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're going to get things wrong. You'll, all sorts of stuff will happen in your life. Uh, sadly, too many people have this illusion that life is supposed to be charmed uh, when, when, when life isn't charmed. Life is full of difficulties. The Scriptures very clearly said, in this world you will have troubles. Or as Job said, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of sorrow. He was having a bad week, so we can, we can kind of go with that. But the simple reality is that there are lots of things that don't go right in our lives, and the biggest danger for us as followers of Jesus is just to give up. And that's what happens a lot of times, isn't it? We get wounded, we get hurt, we get discouraged, we get frustrated, and we just want to take our ball and go home. We don't want to play anymore, and, and that's so easy to do. Believe me, it is so easy to do, and yet that confidence that if I continue to move forward, if I continue to seek God, that that's going to be blessed is the secret of success in the Christian life. The secret of success is not, well, I got this great idea and I went and did it and it worked out and aren't I, aren't I clever or, or aren't I blessed. Well, the truth of the matter is that Paul's, Jesus said, it's by my much labor and tribulation. So it, it's, it's that idea that we just keep on going on and going on and going on and going on. It's sometimes we run at a, at a feverish pace and we can't imagine, we can't believe how fast we're going. And other times we feel like we have uh, shoes of concrete and we can hardly move. It's like those dreams where you can't get away from the zombies. You know, you have those too, right? <laughs> you know, 
Everything moves in super slow motion. I mean, it's just, it's terrifying. <laughs> uh, wake me up, please. And essentially, that, for me, that's been a powerful thing because I think what Paul's concern with, with the Corinthians was, you guys are making lots of mistakes, but at the same time, they were doing something right. In other words, the gospel was spreading, the church was growing, and they were having growing pains. And I think that that mature perspective that Paul brings on their issues is saying, listen, guys, I've, just, I've, I've really kind of uh, scolded you on a whole lot of points, but I'm just telling you, don't get discouraged. Just keep on moving forward, and you'll see God bring glorious fruit and reward out of what you're doing. And uh, for me, that became thematic early on in my journey, and I, I'm, I, I would credit its truth in my life to uh, keeping me in the, in the battle all these years. Well, let's talk about the book, getting more specific, and uh, go through somewhat of the outline of the book and the, some of the passages that stand out here. As I said, the book begins by addressing the issue of the divisions and, the, and the, as he calls, the quarreling in the church. Paul says in, in chapter 1, in, in the ninth verse, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions, no schisms, uh, or literally he's talking about sectarianism, kind of a, a party spirit. Because he goes on to talk about people are saying, well, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a Paul, follower of Apollos, another uh, phenomenal teacher in the church. I'm a follower of this person, that person. And Paul said, you know, Christ isn't divided. It, and we don't, we don't rally around certain pillars and say, this is, this is where we stand. But rather he says, uh, that there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought my brothers, some from Chloe's house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So that literally the word quarrels there just means contentious strife. I mean, they are really getting mad at each other. You know, it's, it's, they're, they're arguing each other, they're dividing each other, they're judging each other. And so he says, basically he goes on in chapter 3 and he, he says this about them. He says, you are still worldly, or literally means worldly-minded. In other words, you got the mind of Christ, you're not using it. You're using your carnal mind. You've reverted back to thinking and viewing things through your unsaved perspective instead of using the regenerated mind that God gave you when you got saved. He says, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? And then he says, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. And then he says, I planted the seed. In other words, he fathered that church. Apollos watered it, was the primary teacher of the church, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. You know, someone once made the comment, they said that the, the church is the only army in the world that shoots its wounded. And, uh, it, it, and that's probably not true because they hadn't heard of ISIS yet. But nonetheless, there, there's, there's this dynamic many times of, of internecine warfare, civil war, civil strife within the community of believers. It's, it's just, it's historical. It's, it's human nature. <laughs> it's what human nature does. And what Paul is calling them is to grow up past that, to mature past that. 
where they recognize we're in this together. Now, some people have often marveled, why is the persecuted church always so much more vibrant than churches which really are comfortable like our culture is? And the answer is pretty obvious. When you're in a persecuted culture, uh, you cling to anybody who's on your side. You, you find brothers and sisters and you cling to them. You, you don't let yourself stop communicating with somebody because they don't quite see things the same way you do. And essentially, it's that necessity of fellowship. We, when you become in a culture like this, you have the convenience. You don't like what's going on in one place. You just simply pack up and go to another place, and you just can, you know, move and move and move. We, on average, we all move once every five years anyway. We might as well change churches every five years as well because there's not this sense of necessity to be connected. At some point, if relational dynamics become difficult, then it's easier just to simply say, I'm just going to go someplace where I don't have to address anything. And essentially, what th this was a dynamic within Corinth. They could afford to be, because they were protected amazingly by the, by the proconsul Gaius, who gave free reign to the Christians in the city. And so they had the, the freedom to be able to not really need to depend on each other. But Paul is calling them, saying there's a greater impelling than just necessity. There's the impelling of the calling of the Holy Spirit of God. As he says later on in ch chapter 4, he says to him, I'm, I'm not writing to shame you, but to warn you as dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. So Paul became that unifying factor in the church and now they had begun, segments of them had begun to attack Paul and criticize his leadership in the church. And this was leading to further divisions amongst them. It's not surprising in that dynamic that you also begin to see that the moral problems within the church begin to rise to the surface. And that's where we come into the next section of the book in chapter 5 where he says in, in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he says, there's a widespread report respecting a case of immorality among you, and that too of a kind that does not even occur among the Gentiles. And he says, a man I hear is living with his father's wife. Instead of grieving over it and taking steps for the expulsion of the man who has done this thing, is it possible that you are still puffed up? Then in verse 13, he adds, expel the wicked man from among you. So from what's stated in the text, we have to somewhat kind of fill in the details so it makes sense to us. His, mother's, his, his father's wife was probably his stepmother. Technically, that's still considered incest. And even, as they said, amongst the, the unbelievers, this was something that was considered to be uh, beyond the margins, outside of what was allowable and acceptable. And yet Paul says, even though this is going on and you know it's going on, instead of addressing it, instead of being grieved in your heart that your brother has fallen to such a depth of sin, you've responded proudly. It's almost like, oh, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Now, this is an important concept, I think, biblically for our day and age, because increasingly we're living in a culture that says the only sin is to point out sin. In other words, we have to be uh, willing to tolerate whatever anybody else does because that's their business, it's not my business. And all I can say is that's not a biblical concept. That's not what Scripture teaches, that the Bible does teach me that I am my brother's keeper. 
that if I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to pretend like it's not my concern. And the reason I think we don't do that more often is because we just don't want to get involved. I mean, it's like uh, uh, somebody made the comment to me, well, I have trouble with difficult people. And I said, of course you do. They're difficult. <laughs> That's where the term comes from. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> and who's difficult for you may not be difficult for me, but nonetheless, that's the nature. I have trouble with that. And so what we're saying is, therefore, I want to go to a place where there are no difficult people. And I, I used to say there is no such place as wrong. The moon. You go to the moon, you will not have any more difficult people to deal with. That's, I'm telling you, it's free of difficult people. But other than that, you're going to find that there are going to be difficult people in everyone. In fact, you get married, you're going to find to your discovery that you married a difficult person. And what's even more humbling is they feel the same way about you. <laughs> and that's the whole point, because how does a marriage become successful? It's like I don't let the fact that we are having difficulty dissuade me from staying committed and investing myself in this relationship. And the consequence is you begin to grow. I, I find that people have such unrealistic expectations about marriage in this day and age. Everybody thinks your marriage has to be amazing. <laughs> and let me put it this way. There are amazing moments in marriage, and I would like to stay in those moments when they come by. But most of the time, the best you can hope for is ordinary regular, predictable. <laughs> and, but there will also be times that are just the pits. And that's just the nature of human relationships. That's how people grow in love because you learn to love people not because of, but in spite of. And that is where spiritual maturity begins to come into our life. And we begin to express that in, in the relational dynamics of our life. And so I just think it's, it's, it's so interesting to me as I look on this because Paul's saying, Really, you're not grieving because you don't want to get invested, involved. You want to keep it at arm's length. You don't want to have to deal with it because it's messy. But let me tell you, if you're going to love anybody in your life, you're going to find that it's going to get messy and you're going to have to get your hands into the mess. And, you know, it's, <laughs> I remember once when my uh, pipes were all clogged up and my, my son-in-law came over and says, oh, I'll take care of that. And I watched him getting his hands in the stuff and I just thought to myself, I'm so glad my daughter married you. <laughs> I'm so glad you are here right now taking care of this for me because I probably would have just sold the house rather than deal with that, you know. And, and, and that's, that's kind of the way we are. But things don't get cleaned up, don't get unplugged unless we're willing to get messy sometimes. I have to just kind of wade into those uh, chaotic things and, and just prayerfully ask God, help us to get through on the other side. In the case of this man, even when he had been confronted, he was unrepentant and they didn't do anything about it. And Paul says, you need to expel him. It's, it's the little term we use, or the Latin term was excommunication. And that's essentially what he's talking about. Excommunicating a person who claims to be a brother but refuses and walks in sin and refuses to acknowledge that it is sin or to repent from it. Again, in this age where we're supposed to be tolerant of everything, that's, people say, well, that's so unloving. Actually, it's the most loving thing you can do. It's the most loving thing you can do because it forces that person 
to address the issues of God. Now, Paul goes on to tell us what happens. He says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, if he wants to walk in the ways of the devil, let him see what the wages are. When you go work for the devil, let him see what the devil pays you. Let him have that experience. He will understand very quickly the cost. As John Callan puts so simply and succinctly, he said, sin is its own reward. And that's the simple truth. It has its own consequences come with it. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to wish wrong on people. If people walk in sinful disobedience and rebellions against God, if they ignore God and tell Him, I'll do my own thing, then they will reap the consequences of it. And our job, as Paul later tells them in 2 Corinthians, once the guy comes to repentance, you need to rush around him and affirm your love for him and his place within the community once again. So the idea was not just to expel, but to bring a corrective into this man's life that he might get right with God. Um, secondly, he got, in chapter 6, gets in talking about uh, lawsuits. Again, I mentioned, he said in verse 6 of the chapter, one brother goes to law against another. And he says, and this is in front of the unbelievers. Again, Paul doesn't flesh out the details for us, but he knew his readers knew exactly what he was talking about. And he said, you know, the biggest issue is here, you're, you're basically cleaning your dirty laundry in front of non-Christians. <laughs> you're just putting it out there for the non-Christian world uh, to see how you have failed to love yourself. And you know what Paul, Paul's prescription is the problem? He said, it is better for you to be ripped off and lose and taken advantage of than to take it publicly and try to expose it. There's an interesting dynamic in, in, in the Western church. I mean, it's not surprising that we have websites and blogs and stuff, but there are, what, there are individuals now who say that they have discernment ministries, and what they do is they focus on the sins of churches around the country and write blogs and castigate it and do investigations and so forth. And one of the individuals explained that our ministry is to expose the w sinful works of darkness. And uh, it's interesting because these people pride themselves in being such biblical exegetes, but the problem is that the context of that passage with Paul is saying that when we walk in the light of Christ, the effect of our life and the preaching of our message is it exposes the sinful works of darkness, talking about the unsaved, the non-Christian world. It's, it's, it's not about exposing the church and exposing ministries. Now, the, the, the non-Christian secular media does an excellent job of that already. But rather, how do we come around and basically say, how do we restore? As a friend of mine is going through a very, very difficult season right now, and, and it's amazing because, you know, just basically all these people have forsaken him. And I find myself, as I'm praying for him, just, God, there are things that he did he shouldn't have done. There are things that weren't right. But God, I love this guy, and I just pray that you'll restore him and not let him give up. Because that's, that's what we need. And I know that every one of us has people like that in our life. And we would like to just terminate the relationship because, it, well, I don't want to be identified with that. You know, it's, it, it was kind of amazing to one guy just, well, I pulled back because I didn't want it to tarnish my ministry. Yeah, so I think there's just some, some dynamics that, that were pretty similar in, in, in this church here, that they, Paul said, you know, it's better to be wronged and just to go on than to drag them, to go so far as to drag them into court and to sue them 
to try to settle the case. And then he moves on from there in, in, chapter, in the second half of chapter 6 by talking about not just the incest situation, but sexual immorality, uh, which was, as I said, somewhat institutionalized within the Corinthian culture. It was part of the idolatrous nature of their worship, and that's probably more directly what Paul is concerned about. But he says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Now, keep in mind, in a typical Greco-Roman city of the time, in the very center of the city would be the marketplace, and in the very center of the marketplaces would have been brothels. And there would have been prostitutes, male and female, walking throughout uh, the marketplace. They would have been, it would have been all around you, and nobody was going to blink if you did something immoral. But again, if you even went as a guest to one of the temples, you would be exposed and even invited to participate in some of the orgies and other things that were part of their uh, form of what they call worship. But Paul says your response should be to flee from it. In other words, there are things in your life, the best way to deal with it is just to run as fast as you can in the other direction. It's the idea that you create parameters around your life so that you never have to deal with it. One of the things I think is most marveling is Billy Graham and his ministry has never been uh, racked with any kind of scandals. And part of the dynamic is that Billy would never allow himself to be anywhere alone with a woman. Even when he would go and do crusades, they would rent the entire top floor of a hotel and they put all the men in the top floor and they have a different floor they would rent for all the female staff and they would be on the different floor. So there's no chance of them crossing. And when they get on the elevator, he would only get on the elevators with men, and there would be no women in the elevator. And it's like, you look at it and say, isn't that kind of over the top? Yeah, it is, except you realize that there were tons of people with cameras and other things who were just desperate to find some dirt on Billy Graham. And so it's hugely inconvenient, not an easy way to live, but he basically, he basically took those precautions. And that's kind of a way, in my mind, of fleeing uh, temptation. You just simply don't go down that road. I heard a story one time of guys walking down the road and he saw that part of the sidewalk had been torn apart and so he got back and he ran. He tried to jump across it and he missed and he fell in the hole. Well, the next day he, he came around it and he thought, well, I'm not going to try that again. I'll just try to sidle up along the side of it and get around it. And as he did, he slipped again and fell in the hole. The third day, he just took another street. And I think that's the concept. We just, just take another street. Just don't go down there. You just don't do that. Anyway, I'll beat that horse to death. Anyway, having, he goes on to say that, and this is an important part, he says, all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. There is a self-destructive part, a degradation of your soul that you feel when you participate in sexual immorality. And I'm including this in things like pornography as well as everything else on the plate. There's a degradation of your soul that you go through if, if you yield to that kind of stuff. And it becomes uh, important to realize that the biggest victim, the first victim, not the only victim, because I, I hate this concept that things like prostitution or victimless crimes, uh, it's the most insane thing I've ever heard. It has to come out of the mouth of somebody who doesn't know anything what they're talking about. But the simple fact is the first victim is you. You're the first one who's going to suffer as a consequence of your actions. And he goes on, he says, Do not you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Think about that for a moment and saying, God lives inside of me, 
and everywhere I am, God is. Who is in you and whom you have received from God? And then he, he really adds, I think, the, the, the real theological reason for all of these things. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In a sense, we're talking about the, the, the sexual immorality, you're talking about lawsuits, you're talking about all these things. He says, the real central issue is you don't own you anymore. You don't belong to you. You belong to God. And you need to live as someone who is the purchased possession of God as best you're able. Which brings us really to the last part of the uh, gospel, or the, excuse me, the letter in chapter 7, where he begins to answer a variety of questions, and I don't have time to go into all the details, but I'll run through them really quickly if I, as I can. He talks about marriage, first of all, and he says basically, value singleness. He says, what, what's the value of singleness? You can serve God without distraction. Uh, you can focus completely on the Lord. And you don't have to worry about the other responsibilities that come with married life. On the other hand, he says, you know, it's good to marry because some people will end up falling into sexual immorality if they don't marry. So it's, it's good to do that. And then he talks about divorce. He says, if you're a believer, stay together. He says, if you're a believer and one or both of you want to split the marriage up, then he says, fine, but remain single and celibate. You know, remain single and celibate. And then thirdly, he says, if you're married to a non-believer and the non-believer doesn't want to stay with you, don't try to persuade them to stay. Let them go. Release them and let them go on their way. And so it's, it's interesting because if you are married and you've never really studied chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, it's a chapter that you really should really become familiar with because Paul really dresses so many of the key issues. One of the biggest ones he basically says about four times in there is remain in the calling where God has called you. He's talking about being content with the situation that you find yourself in in this moment. Instead of yearning to be in something else, some other situation, he says, really just content yourself with where God has called you. And if he has something else for you, he'll work that out. You don't need to go through the efforts to try to fix your own situation. God will fix it if you lay it at his feet. And then in chapter 8, he begins to deal with the, in fact, chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, he deals with the issue of Christian liberty. And... Um, Particularly, the, the first issue that they had to deal with was the fact that when they would sacrifice uh, certain animals in the, in the pagan temples, they often would take any excess meat and sell it in the marketplace. No reason to let it go to waste. Somebody invites you to a house and says, oh, how, how about coming over for dinner? And you go, oh, great, this looks delicious. What is it? And they say, well, this I bought from the temple just today. And Paul says, well, if you eat it, it's no big deal because we know that the temple is nothing, but your brother might be watching you, and he knows it's from the temple, and if you eat it suddenly, he's going to be emboldened to do something that will weaken his conscience. But he really summarized the whole idea in chapter 10, in verses 23, and again in verse 31, he's, that, I, I would put it this way, that liberty that is abused becomes liberty that is lost. And he says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. In other words, not everything creates good results. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. And that's why he says in verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In other words, how do I filter out whether something is good and constructive or not? Will it glorify God? 
Does, does your actions, does it, does it glorify God or does it besmirch the character of God or does it cause a brother or sister to stumble and fall? He says, if that's the case, then it's not constructive and it's not beneficial. He also goes on in chapter 11 to talk about orderly worship. He talks about, begins in chapter 11 by talking about women being in, uh, in, in submission to their own husbands and honoring them as their husbands. He talks about proper etiquette at communion and at love feasts. That literally he says some people in the early church, they had what they call love feasts and they apparently blended it with the idea of the Lord's Supper. So they would eat this big meal, kind of like the church potluck concept, and then they would partake of communion. He says some of you are showing up and getting drunk and some people are eating their own meal. Some people are having filet mignon with Bernays sauce and are, you know, uh, 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 asparagus on the side and other people are over here eating mush. And he says, you know, this is just, this isn't good. This is this dissemination. He says, first of all, let there be an equanimity amongst yourself and be considerate of one another. And if you're really hungry, eat at home before you come so you don't have to eat like a porker when you get here. But he says the biggest issue is you're not recognizing the Lord's Supper. And what he means like that, he says you're taking it unworthy. Well, not that any of us are ever worthy to partake of it, but we recognize what it is, is what he's saying to us. So we do it in a way that we recognize what it is, and it's an emblem of his sacrifice for us. Shouldn't you approach that meal with that same attitude? And that's where the contradiction comes in, that we, we're partaking in the Lord's Supper to demonstrate or to reveal the, the sacrifice of Christ for me, and yet I'm not willing to make any sacrifice for my brother uh, in my relationships. He talks about the proper use of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and again in chapter 14, but then he underlines it most importantly uh, in verse chapter 13 where he says, but the greatest gift of all is love. The greatest gift is all is love. Because at the end of the day, Paul essentially says it doesn't matter how high you jump or how, how loud you shout or how many miracles or wonders you do. At the end of the day, if it's not being motivated by a heart of love, it's not going to be honoring to God. It's not going to be a blessing to others, and it's not going to bring joy into your life. Which brings me to chapter 15 where he talks about the resurrection. And essentially, there apparently had risen in the church a, a concept that altered the biblical teaching of resurrection, maybe the idea, well, Paul makes a statement that if the dead are not raised, and there may have been some who are just simply saying there is no bodily resurrection, because the Greek thought of the day was that the body didn't rise, that you died and your spirit ascended into the afterlife, and that was the end of the story. Apparently, this kind of concept had begun to be incorporated into even some of the teachings and some of the fellowships Paul puts it very succinctly when in verse 19 he simply says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And goes on to speak of the resurrection and the resurrection body that is given to us by the Lord so that uh, we are clothed on with his uh, immortality, immora immortality, yes, immortality. Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> Close for uh, we're clothed with his immortality and, and with, with uh, his, his goodness and not left uh, naked and without, that we're not just simply disembodied spirits that, that die. But again, essential doctrine to the church. Paul says this is essential. There's three things he starts a chapter off. Number one, you have to believe that you're a sinner. Number two, you have to believe that Jesus died for your sin. Number three, you have to believe that Jesus was raised on the third day that you might be raised with him. That's really the, the, the litmus test of whether or not somebody is truly a, a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And chapter 16, he has some closing instructions, which I don't have time to go into. And, uh, but there it is in a nutshell. That was easy, wasn't it? Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that you would help us to uh, formulate in our own mind clear concepts about this book and about its messages. That again, my prayer is that as these men and women have the opportunity to read it, that your Holy Spirit would just really kind of bring back and bring to life and help them to see it, not as just a, a flow of verses and words, but rather, Lord, a very concise message, giving leadership and direction to our lives as we live them every day in Christ. Grant us your grace in this, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.